What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast, and I am here with my guest, Hannah Dimmick. How's it going, Hannah? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm well, I should say. <laughs> Proper grammar. So yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're currently living slash studying. And uh, yeah, let's let's dive right into it. Okay, so um, to start off, I did run five years um, of collegiate cross country and track and field at University of Kansas, and I did kind of mid-distances, 800, 1500, got forced into five seasons of cross country as well, so anyway, (laughs) it's pros and cons, Um, and then I also did my master's there. So I did some research into motor units and that sort of thing. And then I'm now currently living in Calgary in Alberta, Canada. I'm working on my PhD, kind of pivoted to wearable tech and some injury prevention during running research. So Awesome. So when you say motor units, you're not talking about like car engines, correct? (laughs) Yeah, muscle (laughs) motor units. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. (laughs) Just, just for those watching and listening. I didn't pivot that hard (laughs) from car to endurance fatigue stuff. (laughs) Awesome. So, uh, tell us a little bit about um, how you ended up going from, let's say, university in Kansas to working on your PhD in Canada. Uh, honestly, it's just a very unique program here. It's, um, it's a little bit more entrepreneurship focused, which I mean, really most PhDs are a little more academia focused. So that really kind of drew me to it. There's a lot of cool research going on here. I had read plenty of research coming out of here before I even considered coming here. And then when the opportunity presented itself, it was like, oh, seems like a good, good place to be. So then I... Drove 24 hours from Kansas to Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's, uh, that is extremely unique since mm-hmm. most PhD programs are essentially um, mills to create more professors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, yeah, that was a really unique approach to it. So, it's been yeah. fun so far. That was one reason that a few... Uh, mentors of mine said that I probably shouldn't pursue a PhD. If I didn't plan on teaching, then it Mm. was probably a waste of my time. I could do everything that I wanted to with, with my master's. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, but there's still a lot of stuff I want to (laughs) know. They're like, well, (laughs) you got to teach and, and you got to go this professor out. And I was like, "I I know quite a few PhDs who aren't teaching so there there has to be programs where they don't expect you to become a teacher and um they're not making new schools every day (laughs) where you can then become a professor so like the but anyway that's a little bit of an aside so um before we get into a little bit of the discussion about what kind of what you studied in uh or what you were researching at the master's level and kind of what you're doing now. Let's also kind of tease just a little bit about your, um, one of your side passions with Mm -hmm. regards to research, which is the main reason I'd like to talk with you today. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. go ahead and dive into just a little bit. Don't, don't give away the farm. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, what I think we're going to be mostly talking about today is REDS. Some people announce it Red S. It's R-E-D dash S, so kind of a personal preference. Um, but it stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And so that's been kind of coming up in the headlines a lot recently, both especially within the endurance community, but increasingly outside of it, too, which I've been excited to see it getting more attention because I've been kind of interested in following this research since, I mean, literally my senior year of high school, I hired hired is a strong word. Um, but I asked one of my mom's friends who is a doctor to come in and give like a lecture to my high school cross country team about female athlete triad, which is what they're kind of 
calling it more so at the time. So this has been something I've been interested in for a really long time. And yeah, I'm excited to see it getting a little bit more national and international attention. Yes, that's, that's true. So, um, the first that I heard about it in undergrad, I was like, okay, is this like a lot of the other stuff in this book that we have to know that in five minutes we can then forget? Um, and I didn't really understand the significance of it at the time, but, um, then, you know, having especially female teammates in college and then working with, uh, Athletes in sports where weight tends to be a little bit more uh, significant, especially with with certain coaches or with certain events, um, it started to to become more important to understand. So, um, and I still don't think I understand very much of it, which is which is a good a good reason why you're here. So. Um, <laughs> Before we jump back to that, so let's go back to what you were researching um, for your master's degree. Tell us a little bit about that. So I was is pretty specific. Um, we we're looking at motor units specifically in the quad, one muscle in the quad, the vastus lateralis. And for my protocol, um, had people in the bio decks. Uh, we did some, some testing to get their max strength levels. And then they would trace a trapezoidal, um, yeah, I guess a trace is the best way to describe it. And so the harder you push into the force plate, the higher your line rises. And we wanted Mm. them to trace and hold a 40% of their maximum strength. And um, for me, I was doing 30% of their max, 40% of their max, and then 40% of their max for 45 seconds back to back. So that was what I did a lot of my master's work on was kind of looking at the differences between uh, males and females, untrained college males and females in that regard. We did some muscle biopsies as well, looking at different uh, muscle composition and um, kind of found that there were some differences in the ability or the kind of fatigue ability of that muscle, a lot more type one fibers in the women than the men. Gotcha. So um, when I had a mutual friend of ours, Mandy Para on, uh, one of the things that we talked about was how it can be tricky to to do research that compares men and women, especially in today's uh, certain societal groups don't think that there are any differences between men and women, but... um, I think science sometimes doesn't support that. So I think there are there are differences, and and if we don't research them to understand them, then um, then we're not going to do a good job of of figuring out exactly who we are and and what we're capable of as as humans. So yeah, that's certainly. I mean, even including our like bigger topic today, that's something that's come up a lot. Is like so much of exercise science research has been on men and then Mm -hmm. specifically adult men because we talk about like you can't really generalize adult stuff to children either children aren't just small adults and then women are not just small men there's Mm -hmm. completely different physiological factors hormonal factors that go into so much of the stuff that has been previously researched and it's why I think we're starting to see a little more of a push to include women in some of these more classic studies but um yeah so much of our understanding of exercise right now is purely based on men um and it's hard to completely generalize that to women yeah college age men tend to (laughs) (laughs) tend to be the subjects yep yep so they're the easiest to to get their to -hmm. get your hands on right as a researcher Mm -hmm. and um they're available at Mm -hmm. at the university and yeah so yeah. But yeah, it's not like uh, Dr. Stacy Sims. That was the first person that I heard say that, like women are not small men. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's done a, a really excellent job of of explaining that and of being an expert with regards to like what are the differences and and how should how should women hydrate? Mm-hmm. How should women fuel? And not just that, but how should they fuel throughout their cycle, throughout their mm-hmm. monthly cycle? So like. Um, 
so interesting to me. So that kind of gives us a perfect transition into um, into red S or reds or into what used to be called, like you said, the female athlete triad. Um, mm-hmm. So let's go into like the history of that. Explain okay. um, kind of what's going on there. And yeah, I'll let you take it away. Okay. So first of all, quick disclaimer, I'm talking about all of this stuff. This is, I'm not a Reds researcher by any means. Like I said, it's been a very like hobby side passion of mine, reading the research. And I feel like I do have a pretty good grip on how to read and interpret research, but just listening to this, I have not performed any of this research myself. Um, I've just read a lot about it. Um, And also, I have never like personally dealt with this. So a lot of my personal stories are from some really great friends that allowed me to share some of their experiences and things that I've observed. So quick thank you to everyone that kind of let me pick their brains about their personal experiences with it. Um, But yeah, so when I was in high school, which was 2009 to 2012, I remember starting to see some stuff that I would read about female athlete triad, which this is called a triad because there's kind of three main symptoms there. It's um, amenorrhea, which is complete loss of your menstrual cycle, um, lowered energy availability, which it kind of became more of an understanding of a spectrum. It started as being specifically eating disorders. um, And then they, they did kind of expand it into just lowered energy, whether that was due to an eating disorder or other causes and then bone health. So um, it's very highly associated with amenorrhea and lowered energy availability. Uh, So that was kind of the basic structure of it. And, but really I think they were kind of, they kind of came to realize like the energy availability is the beginning of that pathway. Um, and so the energy lowered energy availability, um, leads to eventually loss of, or an irregular menstrual cycle. And then that in turn will lead into lowered bone health in women, especially. Um, but then also lowered energy availability is going to directly affect your bone health in other ways, like even bypassing the estrogen component um and just your body's always having to work to remodel bone it's not just a stationary thing and so if you don't have enough energy to do that eventually your bones will begin breaking down um comes up a lot in overtraining literature too it's not so much overtraining as it is under recovering and Mm -hmm. when you don't have necessary energy availability you are under recovering inherently. So, um, yeah, this kind of started coming up now with the, an article by Mary Kane and Lindsay Krauss in the Mm -hmm. New York times. It's called, Mm -hmm. I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Nike. And she details a lot of her struggles with reds and, um, a lot of other problems that she dealt with, um, with, kind of poor coaching mm-hmm. strategies and yeah. she brings up a lot of stuff there I mean also like mental health and mm-hmm. coaching power dynamics there's a lot of other stuff in there but she does pretty specifically focus on her experience with reds and that's really what's gotten the conversation re-kicked off and and so yeah anyway they they've kind of transitioned now from the terminology of female athlete triad into REDS, this relative energy deficiency in sport. And that is better able to reflect um, both the fact that men can suffer from it as well. um, Mm -hmm. And also that there's a lot more symptoms than maybe just menstrual dysfunction and just bone health. There are things that you can see before you get to that kind of extreme point. So um, Mm -hmm. quickly, I can read from the, the... IOC consensus statement on it. They have kind of a list of things that go along with REDS. It's um, decreased muscle strength, decreased endurance performance, increased injury risk, decreased training response, impaired judgment, decreased coordination, decreased concentration, irritability, depression, and decreased glycogen stores. So there are a myriad of factors that can go with this very complex issue. But the origin of it is 
an imbalance between the energy you're putting into your body and the energy you're expending. So, uh, yeah, and it also kind of addresses, it's a little bit of a side note, but I know for, like, of the girls that I knew that were, had not had a menstrual cycle for sometimes years, um, a really common treatment was they would just say, oh, well, we'll put you on birth control. That'll like, give you a little bit of an estrogen boost. Mm-hmm. It'll kickstart your cycle. But in the last couple years, they've really kind of realized that that fake, I don't want to say fake, uh, what's the right word? It's like forced or... or... Um, synthetic estrogen yeah. is uh, uh, yeah. doesn't really increase your bone density so Mm. you are kind of intervening in a little place there but I mean in the end it's not really addressing the root cause and it's not really solving the problems and if anything it can mask what's happening because you might be having a cycle but it doesn't mean that you actually have correct energy availability so Mm. uh, yeah that's been something that's come up a lot too and I think kind of the transition from referring to it as female athlete triad to this transition to a more complex syndrome with reds has brought stuff like that out too, which has been good to see. Gotcha. So can you explain a little bit about, uh, why as either your caloric expenditure increases or your uh, or the number of calories that you're eating decreases as as either one of those is happening, why at some point does that affect um, the menstrual cycle? So I heard, I'm going to kind of pull this almost directly from someone I heard talking about it. I mean, your body is very good at keeping itself alive. That's the goal. And reproduction is maybe necessary for the survival of the species, but not necessarily for your survival. And so right. it's the first thing to go. Um, if you don't have enough energy to keep yourself alive, there's no reason to, so, like you cannot support a pregnancy. Um, I mean, and pregnancy itself takes significant amount of calories as well. So if you're already deficient for your own system, then your body is kind of like, well, that's, <laughs> that's going to be a no-go for you. So it just kind of cuts that off. Um, but then, unfortunately, that lowered release of estrogen in women, especially, um, does impact bone density. And, I mean, I think I've, I've heard it pretty commonly. I, mean, I think it's around 23 to 25 is when your bone mineral density peaks. And mm-hmm. you can do things keep decreasing over the rest of your life, but you can't ever build it more than from your early to mid-20s. And so so much of this is happening for high school and college age women when you should be focusing really hard on increasing your bone density and getting it to a good place. Mm-hmm. But um, in, instead, they're actually decreasing bone mineral density by kind of having this imbalance there. Gotcha. So when it, when it comes to like, um, like, an adaptation, like if I'm trying to, to force the body to adapt to some sort of training stimulus, but I'm not giving it enough calories in, in order to cover the cost of that adaptation, then those calories that would go to that, they're not going to that because they're needed elsewhere, right? So your immune system is probably yeah. going to be really high on the priority list. Yeah. You, you know, keeping your brain functioning, keeping yes. your heart functioning, your nervous system, like these are all priorities. Um, reproduction is, is just not. It's awfully really, low on the yeah. list. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So, and then as you, for these specifically female athletes that are training really hard and then they're probably not eating enough, or even if they're eating a lot, they're training so hard that it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's offsetting the amount that they mm-hmm. are eating. Um, there's all these other priorities that their body's trying to do to, like you said, keep them alive. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a survival mechanism, right? So, mm-hmm. um, that's one thing that's extremely unique and different compared to, you know, male physiology and, and, mm-hmm. you know, biochemistry is, mm-hmm. uh, 
you know, our reproductive function doesn't really take a hit. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, like it's not, um, it doesn't really shut off, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that, that, you know, female reproductive system does. So is there like a, is there a set body fat percentage that kind of that's tied to, or is that completely unrelated to that? Like, how does that fit in? Yeah, it's, that was a misunderstanding I had for a long time uh, that I thought, I read somewhere that 14% body fat was where you stopped getting your period. That was a, mm. an actual article that was published, which is just deeply untrue. Um, different people have very different ways that they carry fat stores and where it is and how much it is and what's healthy for them. And your, your muscles are very... And your energy systems are very unique to yourself. So, I mean, there's different people would argue that different ranges are ideal. But I think for the general, you can say there's no, there's certainly no perfect number that is where you're going to start seeing symptoms or not. And especially because in the end, it's really about, I mean, you have to think about it more like a seesaw than whatever is really in the middle. So you can be at 25% body fat and, but if you're tipping to expending more calories than you're intaking, you still will start seeing those issues. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And the way that people lose body fat is so different and metabolically based as well that um, it's, it's hard to say that there's one particular threshold that you start seeing the symptoms at it's more about your personal input output balance gotcha because yeah that's that 14 percent. that's right around the number that that i remember hearing it was somewhere mm-hmm. between 12 and 15 percent that's where you know that's where it shuts off and then i was it was kind of at that point that i started to put two and two together when i heard those numbers and then i heard uh the body fat percentage of the girls on the cross country team. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) none of them have their period. Yeah. But like where I went to, to university, like this whole topic was not really discussed at length just because, um, it was very conservative and that was, it's not proper to talk about some things, even Mm -hmm. if it's, you know, important to know. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it wasn't until, grad school where like these these you know specific topics are like oh okay like this is really important if you're working with female athletes or male athletes like either one you're you've got to understand this stuff because there are going to be times where you might be dealing with somebody who's trying to get as low of a body fat percentage as possible because perhaps the coach thinks that will be beneficial for performance Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, if you don't understand this, then you'll just go along with it because you won't know anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, it might acutely improve their performance, but mm-hmm. chronically it might damage them big time. So, yeah, for sure. Um, and that's nothing to say of like the psychological aspect of trying to force someone to restrict and limit the foods that they eat and obsess over it, really. So that's a whole extra component to that that is problematic a lot of times for sure yeah just um yeah so let's dive into that a little bit if you if you've got some insight or stories into how that whole side of of either coming from a coach or coming from a dietitian or a nutritionist saying hey you need to change the way you're eating and and the effects that that can have um especially if it's not explained, like, Mm -hmm. hey, here's how you set up, here's how you determine your calorie needs, here's how you set up Mm -hmm. a calorie deficit that's safe Mm -hmm. or or relatively healthy. If you just say, you know, hey, you need to just, you just need to stop eating because your body (laughs) fat is too high or you're, or you're, you know, you're overweight, like, let's just cut the calories, like, Mm -hmm. like, what kind of physio, uh, sorry, what kind of psychological effects can that have? Yeah, so, A lot of times when we start from the energy availability side, I think there's kind of two extremes. I mean, to one extreme, you do have clinically diagnosed eating disorders, which 
are more common among endurance athletes than the general population. I mean, you've got small uniforms, um, you've got a kind of traditional way that distance runners are supposed to look. Uh, and then in addition to that, I mean, a lot of the qualities that you, typical distance runners have, um, a lot of those go hand in hand with very common prerequisites for some eating disorders. Uh, and that eating disorders are very obviously multifactorial. They're not going to be caused by one thing, one comment, one uh, worldview, something like that. But mm-hmm. um, they, they do show up more frequently in endurance sports than other places. And then on the other hand, you do have people that this calorie deficit has come about purely by accident. I mean, they're just, they've maybe increased their mileage, um, and haven't increased their food intake or they're just busy. I mean, high school, especially are going from doing eight hours of class and then three hours of practice. And then you come home. I mean, you just might not have time in the day to be eating as much as you should. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think those are kind of the two extremes of the lowered energy availability spectrum, but I think where a lot, I'd say most people fall, is in the middle, which is, I think, clinically referred to as disordered eating a lot of times, Um, Mm -hmm. but I think there's several ways that can come about. I mean, one is certainly pressure from coaches, team nutritionists, that sort of thing, to eat healthy or to maintain a certain weight, and this kind of myth of the perfect race weight has been around for a long time. I mean, it's just not really real. There's, you can, and I've heard this from so many people that they thought that getting leaner would be helpful, but then you put on some actual muscle mass and you're all of a sudden running significantly faster. Your performance is increasing a lot. Mm -hmm. And so really this like perfect race weight is going to change over the course of your life, over the course of your career, depending on your strength regimen, depending on your current training cycle. There's, and maybe you have a range where you perform better, but there's never going to be a single number that is best for you. And Mm -hmm. that I think has taken a long time to dissipate in the elite endurance world for sure. And there are definitely coaches and nutritionists that still strongly hold on to that view and in addition to that some a lot of times they're kind of making up this ideal weight um I mean I know that I have some friends both from the school I attended as well as I've talked to some other people from other schools that they're like well I think you should just lose 10 pounds I think that would be your ideal (laughs) weight and this is based on nothing just like Mm -hmm. a gut feeling of this (laughs) professional and it's like that's obviously not healthy and and then I think another that could be like 10 percent of someone's total body weight exactly if they're an endurance athlete like that's just are you kidding me and also when you're already running 60 miles a week I mean what more do you have to do to lose 10 percent of your body weight I mean that is an incredible undertaking that mm-hmm. you're, there's no healthy way to do that. So anyway, those are some things that I've heard for sure. I think a maybe more well-meaning one on the surface is this pressure on so-called healthy eating. Mm. Um, I saw that a lot. I think that was a big issue where it's there's a lot of commentary pressure from nutritionists, coaches to say like, well, if you really care about this sport, you will make any sacrifice you need to. So you won't eat that cookie. You will not eat pizza for a single meal. You will get all the right nutrients and it'll be all whole foods. And never once will I catch you eating a burger or a French fry or something like that, because those are so-called unhealthy foods. Mm -hmm. But I mean, from my perspective, I think like, what is a healthy food? Depending on the time and place that you're eating something, anything could be healthy. You know, if you mm-hmm. are have just finished a workout that took everything out of you and your options are a Snickers bar or a plate of broccoli, like you're actually better off in Snickers. that moment eating the Snickers bar, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's nothing. <laughs> of course there's a time and place. Like you, you do have to eat vitamins. You do have to eat whole foods. You do have to get the right macronutrients. But 
there's all these off limits foods and that's just the very first step to creating really restrictive diets and kind of unhealthy eating patterns. And not only that, but then you're costing psychological energy too, to be like, Oh no, I, I messed up. I ate this brownie or like someone, I went to this event and all they were serving was pizza. And so now I either skipped dinner because I don't believe that's a healthy food or Mm -hmm. now I feel really guilty about it. And there's so much psychological energy expended on stuff like that. When you set up this kind of false, you only have to be eating to find healthy foods. And then I think also there's a lot to be said for more intuitive eating. I mean, like I think maybe when you're craving candy, that doesn't mean you should eat a bunch of candy, but it does to some extent mean maybe you're a little bit lacking in carbohydrates or Mm -hmm. something like that. And when you have a nutritionist or a coach saying, these are the foods you should be eating, it kind of forces you to turn off that intuitive eating side of your brain. And it doesn't allow you to make decisions or listen to what your body is asking you to eat. It's just these lists of things that are acceptable. And then also, I mean, just when you say like, oh, a salad's a healthy food, but a salad has next to no calories in it. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to cut it if that's your lunch every day when you're running 75 miles a week. (laughs) But when you eat with all your teammates and there's this pressure on eating healthy, it's like, oh, you look good if all you got for lunch was a salad because you're making a healthy decision today. And like I said, I think a lot of this is well-meaning. The, the goal is to say like, yeah, let's, let's make sacrifices for our goals. So it's, it's kind of done in the same spirit of like, okay, we have an off day today. Someone says, I'm, I don't think I'm going to run. And then someone else is like, Oh no, just come with me. We'll just do a couple miles. And mm-hmm. it's, it's meant to be that kind of positive peer pressure or when it's coming from a coach, a positive, like, no, I know you have goals. I know that you want to achieve them. This is how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. But I think so much of these just defined lists of this is a healthy food. This is an unhealthy food. Healthy people eat salads. Unhealthy people eat pizza. And I I think that's very dangerous and restrictive, um, not only for actual calorie intake, but also psychologically that can kind of lead into some not great places and then another thing for me I mean I think I had to kind of come to terms with this over the course of college but sometimes it's more important to get calories than it is to focus on where they're coming from Um, Mm -hmm. I mean for me like especially when I was working on my master's and trying to run at the same time I tried to plan really hard but every now and then you just forget to bring a snack you know and if if you've just hammered a hard workout and then you have class for the next three hours and your only option is don't eat or get some Doritos out of the vending machine, like you get the Doritos out of the vending machine. You know, it's not it's not a health food, but is it better than going for four hours before you can make yourself dinner? Like I I would think so. So Yeah. And then you, you've, one thing you've got a workout probably the next day you've probably Mm -hmm. got to meet that weekend and the majority of your glycogen replenishment is is going to occur within you know the few Mm -hmm. hours after that training Mm -hmm. session like where that's when you can get a ton back in Mm -hmm. so that you're so that you're not as catabolic right so you're you've got to get some fuel in so that you're working into a state where your body can absorb the -hmm. training that you just the stressor that you just put it through yeah um and yeah like that's one of those things if you can it can be really difficult to to reframe that whole situation if your coaches or your nutritionist or your teammates are telling you hey like if you're not eating healthy food then you're hurting the whole team it's like mm-hmm. ah, like maybe that's not the case because you can eat super clean and never clean right because mm-hmm. what is that uh <laughs> you can eat super clean and never reach your calorie needs. Yeah, exactly. It's actually much harder if all you're yes. trying you'd have to eat so much lettuce to hit the amount of calories that you expended in a 60 mile week. Yeah. And by that time you've, 
you've ingested so much fiber that you're probably <laughs> actually causing more gastrointestinal yeah. issues than, yeah, than not. Sure. So definitely not the recommended route of caloric replacement. Yeah. <laughs> like two anecdotes that uh, that I'll just kind of throw in here, and both of them I I heard you know listening and reading stuff by Lane Norton. Um, one of them was, uh, you know, like if you're if you're so focused on just eating clean, right? And let's say your goal is weight loss. He's saying like if your goal is to lose weight or fat, and your only focus is clean eating, what do you do when your progress stalls? Do you mm-hmm. eat cleaner? Like like <laughs> what do you do, right? So there has to be something more to it than just eat healthy like you have to know to some degree like how like what am i expending or what am i what am i spending and then what am i making mm-hmm. right so cause I, I like to <laughs> use the analogy of of you know debt and currency right so if you make x amount of dollars in a day like what are your expenses for that day do they do they add up to zero or are you in the red or are you in the black? Like, where are you at? And if you're in the red, then sorry, things aren't going to work out well for you. So like, that's that first anecdote. The second one, shoot, what was it? Oh, well, I'll think of it later. (laughs) But yeah, I was in talking to one of my teammates recently too. She said that one of the things that she looks back on and thinks was the most harmful is yeah, saying, these foods will set you back. And every food had a net positive or negative tagged with it. And it's like, this slice of pizza is literally hurting your progress. Meanwhile, this salad bar is helping you. Or this slice, this piece of grilled chicken, this is pushing you towards your goal. And to always be having to make that calculation day in and day out of every single food I'm ingesting has a a predefined price tag associated with it and it's Mm. contributing or taking away from my progress and so yeah I think that's a a tough thing to set up for yourself yeah you're you're you've got to put like this moral stamp on everything Mm -hmm. you eat it's like good or bad it's like right or wrong instead of what would be optimal right now uh, based off what I have access to or what would make me what would make me feel better at this point yeah. in time because sometimes that's gonna be the difference between um, in you know enjoying what you eat and looking forward to being able to eat something and um, and then that translating into a better training session either that day or the next day because you're you're not worried like, gotta eat this stuff again and Mm -hmm. I don't like it yeah yeah exactly and I think that that psychological aspect is overlooked a lot by I would say nutritionists especially and that's a really sweeping statement because I know that not all nutritionists and dietitians are on board with that but I think it is hard when your job is to say yeah these are the right macronutrients for you and based on my schooling and based on my what I've learned, this is what would fuel your body the best. But then when you sit down to dinner and you're like, I physically cannot eat another piece of grilled chicken and broccoli, then it's not really working. So you have to take into account also what's doable for you and not just what is theoretically this kind of abstract optimal. And also it's like if you are genuinely unhappy not being able to eat dessert in season, then how is that really helping anyone? I mean, like one cookie a day is not going to set back all the progress you made in your four mile workout that day. You know, Mm -hmm. if anything, it's, it's a nice little, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a nice reward. Um, yeah. If you can do things to make yourself happy, that's a huge contributor to performance too. I mean, your, your just general happiness, life satisfaction is a really big thing in trying to improve performance. So for sure, that's, that's way less of a stressor on your mental health, even if it's Mm -hmm. not like improving your performance or recovery or whatever, because Mm -hmm. even that, like 
like you said, uh, there are times where that that might be your only option. But even if it's not your only option, it's it's going to a contribute towards your calorie needs, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and b, you're not gonna like, you're not gonna be mentally drained by one more chore. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Every, every exactly. single time you put something into your mouth, you got to be like, okay, you know, is this, do I put this in the good category or the bad category? Like, yeah. Don't, yeah. you shouldn't have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely an extra piece of stress that, I mean, especially in high school, in college, athletics, anything sub pro you're also trying to take classes or you're maybe trying to apply to grad school or to jobs and you're traveling every weekend and you're having to skip class to travel. And then when you, <laughs> the last thing you need is to add extra stressful decisions to your day. So for sure, for sure. That's so true. I'm going to, I'm going to throw a, a shameless plug in real quick because all of that stuff we're discussing, <clears throat> you can find in my book, the self-reliant <laughs> diet, which teaches you how to find your calorie needs and mm-hmm. then how to pick an appropriate level of the macronutrients so that it fits your lifestyle and it, it's not some preset number that you have to get to. And then if you don't get to, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. Like, no, like mm-hmm. what, what can you do consistently? That's that. So I just published yeah. that earlier this earlier this week so i'm really excited about okay (laughs) i'm glad that i could give you an in there (laughs) available on amazon (laughs) all right so let's go into um when or where is body composition relevant in sports So this is a little bit, I'd say, up for debate. I mean, I've heard professional athletes and professional researchers on pretty opposite sides of this coin. Um, I think the one thing everybody can agree on is that there are things that are much more important than body composition. Um, It's not something that should be your top level fixation. Um, It's your, your training and how you feel and your sleep and those sorts of things should take much higher priority than trying to quote unquote optimize body composition. Um, That being said, I have heard some researchers in this field that I really respect that say, yeah, body comp does have a lot to do with intentionally optimizing body composition can be really positive. But even those individuals have said, this is, that should only be for your peak competitive season so the person I was listening to is talking about it um, he trained his wife who was an Olympian and he said that for them they would take this you know two-month period when she was really competitive trying to go through the trials trying to go through the Olympic cycle and that's when they would work on like maybe we can get you into a little bit of a calorie deficit so you can lose a little bit of weight and you're a little bit lighter but it was never an intentionally long-term thing um it was never something that they continued into the off season and it was certainly not something that they continued while she was injured it was a very particular competitive season and that gets tricky especially with high school and college sports because your competitive season is eight months out of the year so Mm -hmm. i think that's too long to be putting yourself in an energy deficit for competition um it's just it's much easier to do at the elite level. It's not something that you should probably be trying to do at the high school and college level. Um, on kind of the opposite, I wouldn't say opposite end, but a little bit different opinion, Lauren Fleshman, who is, uh, I, I'm saying this, I don't know if she ever made it to the Olympics, but several world championships, really amazing American female 5K runner, um, mm-hmm. had a phenomenal career. And she, she thinks like, that should be at the very bottom of your list. Her thing is, is if you're doing everything else right, if you're inputting as many calories as you're putting out, if you're getting enough sleep, if you're training hard, if you're mentally healthy, all of those things, then your body comp will kind of optimize itself. So Mm -hmm. 
that could also be person dependent. I mean, maybe some for some people, you really even in your competitive season, there's no need for you to push down to a lower weight because you can optimize your own body comp through some of these other things. Um, I think that's probably a little bit more of a personal decision, um, and most people that are making those decisions are at the elite level, so they hopefully have really good people to get advice from but mm-hmm. I think it is challenging when you're in high school and college and you really your competitive season is far too long to be intentionally optimizing body composition for your entire season it's just too too long to put yourself in that kind of a deficit yeah that's like every day you only put you know let's say you've got a 10 gallon gas tank in your car mm-hmm. and every day you only put in five gallons, but you're using, you know, you're using more than five gallons <laughs> of gas, right? So every day you're, you're getting less and less total, total volume into that gas tank because yeah. you're just, you're not filling it up all the way. And yeah, if you're doing that over the course of, like you said, an eight month season, you're going to get to the end. And even if you're putting in that, that five gallons every day, like you're on E at the end of every day. Yeah, exactly. And, and the long-term consequences of that are very negative. Yeah, for sure. And you're leaving so much potential adaptation on the table. Mm-hmm. Like, you could be better. You could, mm-hmm. your performance could be way better. So, yeah. And um, not only that, I mean, obviously, you if you don't have enough energy, you can't... <laughs> expend enough energy on your performance on your training I mean it's certainly going to impact your performance but then when I mean obviously one of the symptoms especially when you get deeper into reds is depression you do start having some mental health symptoms which also negatively affect your performance I mean even outside of physiologically the impact of low energy availability is extremely negative and then in addition to that I mean if you're talking about your long-term progress your energy resist sorry not energy injury (laughs) resistance is such a big indicator of and not for everyone but for most people the less injured you are the more progress you can make because you can Mm -hmm. put in more consistent training and if you're developing pretty consistent injuries it's going to be much more difficult to make that kind of consistent progress and I think that that maybe is a little bit more well understood at the elite level but I mean in high school and college and again broad strokes I don't think every coach or nutritionist is like this but when you have 20-25 girls on your team but you only need seven for cross country or I mean maybe a few more during track season you can afford a little bit more to just kind of throw everybody at a mileage plan and see who breaks and Mm -hmm. so anyway it's I think there's maybe a little bit less attention brought to that injury cycle in college because if you're not if you're not contributing to the team sometimes you can get kind of left in the dust a little bit and no one's examining the root causes of why this injury cycle is continuing Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's the truth there's so many programs that you you hear about you know a, a big group of really good athletes going to and then like maybe only a handful of them actually do well because it's mm-hmm. like yeah like here's this is the standard everybody has to do it good luck mm-hmm. you know so um so to kind of bring this kind of this topic to to a bit of a close how do you as as an athlete male or female, uh, prevent these potential issues from arising? Um, it's, it's hard. I mean, especially because what is the right thing for you? I know it's a classic phrase, but the right thing for you is not what's right for your teammate. It's not even right for the person that you run the same workouts as and run the same mileage as because maybe you expended the same energy in a workout, but maybe your classes are much further away and you're walking significantly more. That's energy that you're expending. Maybe 
you have a more stressful class load. Maybe they have a more stressful class load. Maybe you just have a higher metabolic rate, just basal metabolic rate. Um, so there's so many complicated factors in trying to figure out how much caloric intake is necessary for you. I mean, my advice, I guess, would be is like try to eat intuitively, eat when you're hungry, um, don't focus too much on restricting certain foods. Easier said than done, for sure. Um, but then recognizing kind of the early symptoms of it. I mean, everyone's going to have a bad workout every now and then. Um, sometimes you're going to have to stay up late to study for a test and you just don't feel great the next day. Um, but prolonged not feeling good um, is not right. Um, and maybe it's something that you should be talking to your coach about. And yeah, a lot of these other symptoms, I mean, starting to get into kind of the mental health symptoms, if you find yourself just really down, whether it's about sports or just in general, um, if you find yourself kind of getting into intentionally worrying about the foods you're eating, those are all kind of warning signs that maybe something is going to start happening. With women, it's the easiest way to tell is if you stop getting your period, there's something wrong. And I don't think that that is emphasized enough at all. I mean, I know in high school, the for me, the message was from my teammates, at least, was if you're still getting your period, you're not working hard enough. And that is just so, so, so wrong. And um, it I've, I know that I kind of, as I got a little bit older, I kind of was able to research some stuff and be like, okay, it's actually okay if you're getting your period. It doesn't mean that you're not working hard enough. But it took even more years to find out that, like, no, it's actually really positive. This is actually something that should be happening. This is a good indicator of your health. Mm-hmm. And there were, I mean, such a huge percentage of the girls on my team had super irregular periods. And Nobody was asking them about it, to, to my knowledge, at least. I mean, I was never really asked about it, so I just mm-hmm. assumed nobody really was. And it, it's such a quick, early indicator that something's probably wrong and that something could get worse down the line. And so, anyway, and then also, again, like, taking birth control can kind of obscure that a little bit and especially if you've been prescribed birth control intentionally to give you back your period that's maybe not the the best route to increase bone mineral density etc it's not addressing your root cause of inadequate energy availability so yeah just kind of watching out for those early warning signs and talking with the nutritionist or a coach if you start seeing things come up a nutritionist or a coach that you, you trust doesn't have the more old school beliefs about uh, what your ideal race weight should be and how if you look a certain way, then it means you're healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that whole idea is starting to, to shift. Um, Cause I'm, I'm more along the lines of, of thinking that if you're applying if you're fueling correctly, you can ap- apply a potent stimulus, and from a from a very potent stimulus, the body will get the most adaptive mm-hmm. response. And if you're mm-hmm. doing all of those things, then your body's not going to change in a way that's not beneficial for what you're training mm-hmm. for. Like it's mm-hmm. it's going to push you in the direction that will make it as efficient as possible based on the mm-hmm. way you're training. So if you're training correctly and you're fueling correctly and you're recovering correctly and you're adapting appropriately, then the body will do what it needs to. But if you're not fueling correctly, um, there's not going to be a potent stimulus. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so I, yeah, you, you gotta, I think it's probably good for people to have some idea of of the number of calories that they need based on and those these are prediction equations you know you don't need to go and do a metabolic ward and do a metabolic test to to know the exact amount because that's you know that's just not possible for most people but um i tend to set up you know a calorie goal and for some people it's a range 
for some people. It's a specific minimum. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's what I want them to, to shoot for every day. And the nice thing is, if you don't hit that, then that's okay. You have the opportunity to either make up for that tomorrow or you just, you know what, tomorrow's another day and don't worry about mm-hmm. yesterday. Get back on track, you know, tomorrow and, and hit your goals. And I think um, that's really appropriate at some times and at other times it's not good to to have to track every single thing you eat and to weigh all your food and to be, uh, you know, to be on so far end on, on this side of the spectrum where everything is like how many grams of this and how many ounces of it. And it's like, that's not healthy either. So Mm -hmm. like, but there's a time and a place for everything. And I think knowing kind of specific numbers of what your needs are, but then also learning how to eat intuitively, um, Mm -hmm. And, and being able to, to weave back and forth between those two when it's appropriate, I think is, is okay. probably a really good way to, um, to not only ward off some of these potential, um, energy issues, but also like, you're going to get the most out of your training and, mm. and, and competition. And your life also, I mean, <laughs> that's another thing that's really kind of hard to I don't know what the right word is hard to see, like sad to see is a lot of these issues that develop can really like follow you for a very long time. I mean, whether it's the psychological impact of really like beginning restrictive diets or restrictive eating plans or assigning morality to food, you know, (laughs) and or just the injuries that people incur and or lowered bone mineral density through the time period that you're supposed to be building it. I mean, you might not be showing up in your 30s, but those problems might start showing up in your 60s. And when your bone mineral density is decreasing at a, to a lower rate than it should have because nobody told you that you were supposed to be getting your period when you're 20. <laughs> you know, and so it's, that's the other kind of really hard part, sad thing about a lot of these issues not being addressed for so long is the impacts are in your performance and then could be really frustrating because of really wasted potential, but also some really long-term side effects that will go far beyond your athletic career. Yeah, so everybody needs to know this stuff. It's important. Yes. It's practical. It's extremely practical. Yes. yes. So um, tell us, we'll transition a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what you're currently researching. Uh, if you don't mind telling us a little yeah. bit about the, uh, the wearable tech. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this program. Um, my supervisor is Dr. Reed Ferber. Um, I don't know if anybody's read into any wearable tech stuff but um yeah he's started this program up here it's kind of a collaborative degree initiative between um, the kinesiology department which is what i'm in as well as biomedical engineering computer science um, electrical engineering everything every component that you would need to put into a piece of wearable technology Um, and so through that we get to work with for, like for me in kinesiology that's super cool that I get to be working with electrical engineers that's not probably a crossover I would have happened across mm-hmm. in a more specific degree program and so yeah my projects right now I'm working on looking at some marathon data that was gathered with um like center of mass pods on the back um kind of analyzing some fatigue stuff from that, trying to see if we can pick up on some fatigue patterns. Um, We're also, as an entire program, starting this really neat thing with the city of Calgary. We're collaborating with the city of Calgary government, actually. And they are funding us to create a database that we're hoping to get a couple thousand people into And we're specifically for them looking at cyclists. And if we can, we're hoping to get a pretty representative sample of cyclists and kind of looking to see what routes are they taking to work 
every day and are there bike lanes on those routes would we be better served by maybe putting some bike lanes on these routes that people are using frequently um and then my personal favorite part if they are using devices that do track heart rate uh we're looking at heart rate variability as a proxy of stress so if we're starting to pick up on a lot of heart increased activity at certain intersections it's like maybe we need a light here instead of a four-way stop or <laughs> something like that. So um, anyway, or maybe we need to clear these roads a little bit better in the winter because this is, gets really icy over here or whatever. Mm. So I think there's a lot of really cool potential for the overlap that we're doing of big data and wearable technology. That's one of my favorite parts of wearable tech research is it gives you the ability to tap a much larger sample size, which is one of the really hard parts about exercise science studies is a lot of times they do have very small sample sizes and you're kind of, if you want to make large sweeping conclusions, you're drawing from 10 studies that have 10 subjects each and there's the problems with statistical power there and in mm -hmm. addition, just you want an answer to your question and it's just hard to find it with few participants but um, yeah I'm really excited to get working on some of the bigger data stuff yeah that's that's so cool like almost all of my clients now uh, when they come in you know they've either got an Apple watch or they've got Garmin and like they can track like their mileage they can track their stride length they can track their elevation change they can track mm -hmm. um their stride frequency and their ground contact time and like it's all of this data which is super cool um you know like five years ago like we didn't we just didn't have that mm -hmm. you know 10 years ago mm -hmm. we weren't even thinking about it so um to see kind of how things are trending and, and the way things are going with um, not only like watches, but other stuff that you can wear is pretty mm. awesome. So yeah, yeah, definitely a growing field, which is fun to be a part of as well. Sure. So when will you be Dr. Hannah? <laughs> um, well, if everything goes well, um, summer of 2023. So I've got I've got a minute before that. <laughs> <laughs> not a New York minute. But no, no, a long frozen one. <laughs> you got a little while. That's yeah. cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, this has yeah. been thank you so much for having me. It's, this has been awesome. Like I said, kind of my fun side project for the past couple of years. So it's nice to have a reason to talk about it. For sure. So if someone wants to reach out to you and ask you a question or um or just follow you like on Instagram, how What's the best way to do that? Yeah, my Instagram is just my name. No spaces or punctuation. Hannah Dimmick, H-A-N-N-A-H-D-I-M-M-I-C-K. So, yeah, feel free to take a look. Uh, send me a message, any questions you have. If you do have, if you do want some other references, I'll just throw this out right now. If you are interested in this topic um Trent Stellingworth is probably the like leading expert in this field to my knowledge um and he's on Twitter at at Trent Stellingworth it's S-T-E-L-L-I-N-G-W-E-R-F-F -F. so he's got a really great active Twitter retweets a bunch of great studies and has a bunch of his own content um and then Margot Mountjoy is the lead author of the IOC consensus statement on REDS. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if you want like a really comprehensive paper about like really everything we just talked about, the IOC consensus statement on REDS is what it's called. And for an academic paper, it is very readable. So even if you don't have a lot of experience in reading academic journals that they make it everything very clear and easy to understand so not very awesome. jargony sweet yeah i'll include a link to that in the show description so that okay everybody cool. has cool. has uh, access mm -hmm. to that but um yeah awesome well best of luck thank in, you uh, <laughs> in pursuing <laughs> the rest of your of your schooling oh you know what <laughs> i forgot to ask you this one what's your plan after uh, after getting your PhD, what's what's the goal? What's the dream job? Uh, the, I mean, 
I think probably I'd like to work research and development for a wearable tech company. I mean, living in Kansas for six years, my heart is with Garmin, but that could obviously change uh, between now and then. I feel like there's going to be like 300 new wearable tech companies between now (laughs) and the time that I graduate. So you never know. Um, And then, yeah, also maybe just that's the other thing I'm trying to kind of keep an open mind because this field is progressing so quickly that Mm -hmm. truly like the job that I get might not exist yet. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of potential and a lot of opportunities, but yeah, we'll see. That's awesome. And then I'll put you on the spot one more time. So, um, I give all my guests an opportunity to just share like a, um, like a quote or, or something meaningful or just a piece of information that you think everyone watching or listening would benefit from hearing. Ooh, that is on the spot. Um, yeah, I should, I should have let you know beforehand. I usually let people know. That's the that's last okay. thing I ask. But. Yeah, okay. Um, let me think for a second. A piece of information is probably what I'll have to go with. I don't have a very good, like, library of quotes in my brain. But, <laughs> that's all good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something practical, something useful. Well, I guess something that is interesting is the 10,000 step rule for wearable tech is garbage. That's that's my (laughs) comment. It means nothing. Somebody basically, I don't want to say they made it up, but it's so, I mean, now they've kind of got the stuff that adjusts for you uh, based on your daily activities, but 10,000 steps as the goal was made up via the last Tokyo Olympic slogan. Mm. Um, They were trying, or Tokyo mission or something. They wanted when they were hosting the Olympics to like have a country full of healthy people. So they were encouraging people to take 10,000 steps a day, completely Mm. arbitrary number. Um, (laughs) There's so much research that says like, there's more specific research for arthritis patients. There's more specific research for cancer patients. And yeah, basically just stay active. 10,000 steps is just garbage. <laughs> that's, my, that's my piece of information. Kind of on topic for the wearable tech too. So Nice. That's awesome. And really funny. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure I'll have you on again in the future to talk about more fun stuff um both related to to reds and also to wearable tech stuff i'm sure so yeah i'd love to so awesome excellent Alrighty, y'all well stay tuned for next week's episode and thank you for watching and go follow hannah